Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. From an early age, Theodore Alvin Hall had shown an astonishing mind for mathematics and physics. In 1940, Hall had scored some of the highest marks ever on the entrance examination at Columbia University. Due to extenuating circumstances, however, he was not allowed to enroll. Hall was not deterred. He went on to attend Queens College in New York and would transfer two years later to Harvard, where his professors were so impressed with his grades, he was allowed to bypass the first year of his course. While at Harvard, Hall immersed himself in relativity and quantum mechanics and even received a special scholarship for his groundbreaking work. He became the star pupil of Professor John Van Vleck, one of America's leading experts in quantum theory. By 1942, Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany were expanding throughout mainland Europe with relative ease. And unbeknownst to Hall, Van Vleck had been secretly recruited by the U.S. government to help with the most sensitive undertaking in the country's history. A project so important, the future of the free world hung in the balance. Van Vleck would look to ultimately sway the momentum of the war in favor of the Allied forces by adding his star pupil to his team, while at the time, Theodore Alvin Hall was only 18 years old. Welcome, everybody, to the Missing Chapter Podcast. I'm Phil Schaff here with Phil Hornder. Today, Phil, we got uh, a great brew and a great episode. We got some Adirondack Blueberry from Utica Roasting Company. And uh, today, Phil, the episode that you gave us an intro for today, I'm really curious about, not that I haven't been curious in other times, but this one you have told me absolutely nothing about. And I hear you typing away over there. Um, and there's a couple of giggles every once in a while mixed in with that too. So I know you got something for us. There's some twists and turns, I think, along the way here. Yeah. You know what? Some of these episodes, Phil, as you know, you come across the topic where initially something on the surface kind of strikes you, boy, this is going to be a really good podcast. And then as you get your researching going, you know, there's like two or three more layers where you're like, wow, I thought it was good in the beginning. Yeah, But like a good novel, you get deeper and deeper into the story. And like you said, there are twists and turns and it becomes an even better story than you ever intended. Because the first half of your intro was remarkable right. in and of itself. Then you had the second twist. I'm really curious where, where this is going to take us. And I think this is kind of nice, too, because this is almost like a little follow up secrecy, sabotage, that kind yeah. of stuff from the Shellshock episode, which which aired a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, exactly. And I also think it's a time period, you know, anything within World War Two, I think, mm. you know, we we find interesting. Uh, I think our listeners find interesting, but it's an area, it's a subtopic within World War Two that I don't think we've delved much into. Yeah. So it's a different take on a on a time frame that we've dealt with a couple of times in some of our previous episodes. Well, so I think you guys will enjoy it. Yeah, you got my attention. I'm sure you got the listeners. So let's get after it. So Theodore Alvin Hall, who I introduced you to in the introduction, was born in New York on October 20th, 1925, the son of a furrier. Now, Phil, you heard me looking this up over at my desk. <laughs> yeah. And I said, it's a furrier. It's somebody who deals with furs. Right. Whether, you know, creating jackets or, or things along that line, probably um, uh, women's wear 
in the 1920s. But that's important to this story, believe it or not, right there in the first sentence. I'll come back to it. Okay. Hall attended public school number 173 in Washington Heights during the Great Depression. And it was so obvious that his gifts for math and science at a very young age that by 14, Hall was tentatively admitted to Columbia University. Okay. Tentatively because, as I said, there are some extenuating circumstances. Yeah. The book Bombshell by Joseph Albright and Marsha Kunstel chronicled Hall's rise through Harvard, where he was accepted at 16, to his first interview for a position as junior physicist at Los Alamos sometime around his 18th birthday in 1943. And this was preceded, obviously, with the information that I talked about in the introduction. Hall was only 14 when he received what many believe uh, are the highest grades ever on the Columbia University entrance exam. But here's the catch. Columbia was very interested in having him enroll, but he was deemed too young and instead went to study at Queens College in New York. So regardless so, of his scores, right? it really boiled down to the fact that he was too young. Right. Got 14. It. We said, I mean, what is that? Like eighth grade? Yeah. Um, so they, they just figured, you know what? Um, obviously, ability-wise, he's more than capable. But maturity-wise, for him to attend a university in the 1920s just wasn't the right thing to do. Okay. Okay. So, um, like I said, he, he was uh, deemed too young. He went and said to study at Queens College in New York. And it was from here two years later that he transferred to Harvard and began his apprenticeship of sorts with Professor John Van Vleck. And as I mentioned in the intro, Van Vleck was already, already fully involved in the preliminary stages of the Manhattan Project with the U.S. federal government. Van Vleck had been recruited himself by leading U.S. scientist Robert Oppenheimer to help design the atomic bomb. And he, in turn, recommended Hall for work in Los Alamos, New Mexico. So this is all under secrecy. No all one, under secrecy, right. No one has any idea that Van Vleck is part of the Manhattan Project. Right. Hall, Hall does not know. He's just another professor, somebody that he works very closely to. But Van Vleck is about to, to reveal that to him to a certain degree. Okay. Okay, to a certain degree. Although somewhat reluctant, Hall did express interest in the idea of working with the U.S. government and specifically the Defense Department when Van Vleck initially proposes the idea to him. And they keep this in. They keep this very vague. Um, they being Van Vleck and, yeah. the, and the government. The government interviewer who they bring in was intentionally vague in the magnitude of the weapon that they would be designing and developing, saying only something to the extent of that the proposed job was very secret and crucial to the war effort. And I, I think that's more. I don't think that is a reflection of the fact that Hall is so young. I just think it's a reflection of the magnitude of the weapon. Right. And they want to keep this secret, period. Of course. And they would have treated you know anybody the same way, regardless of age. Now, I don't know if you saw this in your research, but yeah. how did Oppenheimer know of Van Vleck? He just, because of Harvard, and, and he was, because of, I mean, he was very well, well known. He okay. was renowned for his work. All right. Especially being in Harvard. In the field. Anybody. Right, right. Okay. So Hall accepts the job. And starts working in Los Alamos almost immediately. Okay. So by June 1944, after working on the project for only several months, Hall was awarded a first-class degree in abstentia by Harvard. This, in turn, led to a full promotion for him at the age of 18. Wow. To head a team, head a team, involved in designing the implosion trigger for one of the experimental bombs. The one, in fact, that would eventually be successfully detonated on July 16, 1945. So only a little over a year later, yeah. after receiving that that upgrade, 
at the Trinity site in New Mexico. That's incredible. So it's not just that, you know, he's 18, he's smart, but he's able to produce. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's working within this program and they're seeing results out of this, this young man. And we've seen, we've seen this before. We've talked about this in previous episodes, uh, you know, with like your Elon Musk's, your, your absolute brainiacs, but maybe don't have the execution factor. You right. know, have these great ideas. Obviously Elon Musk can execute uh, fully, but you have some of these other people who may not know how to do something, but they have this great idea. Uh, and they would look to someone else to, to do it. This right. guy is, is double that. He's he's not only a brainiac, but he's an engineer in itself where he can actually follow through with his ideas. You know, it's fun because you you said at the very beginning, and it's completely true that you didn't know what I was going to say. But that's the perfect segue into this next uh, set of notes that I have. You brought up Elon Musk and the fact that he he's brilliant. Yeah. But he's a little, I guess, eccentric. Yeah. So despite Hall's successes, his accolades, his promotions, He'd also earned the reputation on base as being somewhat of a rebel, they referred to him mm-hmm. as, specifically against a lot of the military and the militaristic ways of doing things, the social hierarchy that existed within the ranks, so to speak. So, for instance, Hall frequently re- frequently refused to salute commanding officers. Oh, wow. He refused to address higher-ups as sir or madam. And he even um, refused to wear the regulation army cap that was issued to him. And he had to go as far as to receive special permission from the base legal officer to wear a skull cap in its place, although he was, by his own admission and based on his actions, not a religious person. <laughs> so they're they're bending and tweaking the rules, and I think they're just looking at it. It's like it's who he is. It's yeah, who he is. Yeah. Um, probably part of what got the savant to this position is maybe he's a little bit eccentric, right? And because he's producing, we're willing to look the other way. So, you know, based on my research, it was apparent, you know, as the youngest physicist working on the atomic bomb project at Los Alamos during World War II. And and like I said, a noted savant in the fields of math and science. Hall was being allowed to bend the rules just slightly as long as his production in the program continued. All right, Phil, I don't want to jump in and interject here, but I'm on the edge of my seat here. I think the word that you used uh, a minute ago was was rebel. And when I when you said that something resonated with me, I just want to share with you. Maybe maybe you can expand on this a little bit. If you look at histories of inventors, people who uh, came up with the most profound, world changing kind of inventions, they were always like you said, a little eccentric. But mm-hmm. I would almost consider them rebels of of norms. You know, like you're you're not thinking of the same way all the time because then you're never going to invent anything new. You have to be a little bit rebellious. Uh, you have to kind of reject the old way of doing things to come up with something new and profound. Is it is is that element that he has, that rebelliousness that he has, really what gave him the opportunity to think to to, to think of something so incredibly profound as what we're talking about the Manhattan Project? No, I think I think there are a lot of different elements that go into this film. I think that's definitely one of it. I just think it's it's who he is. It's it's how he's wired. He's brilliant on a scale that even the people who, you know, mentored him at Harvard, um, he's, he's beyond them almost. I mean, he's been recruited specifically by the greatest minds of the time for arguably the most important, um, you know, experiment that, that, that the country is going to conduct up until this point in our nation's history. And I think it's who he is. I also think we forget because in the context of what we're talking about, he's still 18 years old. Yeah. And 18 year olds are rebellious. Yep. You know, it's so, yes, he's well beyond his peers 
in terms of other 18 year olds, in terms of what they're doing and what he's doing and, you know, what he's involved in, obviously. But the fact that he's 18, you still go back and say, yeah, he wanted to, you know, rebel a little bit. And, you know, the environment he's in is very structured. It's very rigid. It's military based. And I think a lot of 18 year olds would say, listen, if I, unless I'm going to go into the military, maybe I, yeah. I don't want to be saluting people or, or referring people to, to people by sir and madam. It kind of makes sense. How about this too? We almost we all also forget. Excuse me. We also forget the fact that, I mean, you're at Harvard, and he's not the only one in the class right. either. You know, like you you forget the, that all these NBA players are unbelievable basketball players when you have a Michael Jordan on the court. Mm -hmm. You know, you you this kid is just so unbelievably different in right. so many facets. You forget that how many other people in that class were overlooked. These yeah. are all brilliant kids, and he was selected out of all of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and after the preliminary tests of the implosion trigger, the mechanism's practicality, and the successful experiment of the bomb in July of 1945, Theodore Hall decides to take an annual leave to celebrate his 19th birthday, which he's coming up on, with his parents, and they're going to head back to New York. But as he would later explain to American journalists Albright and Kunsel, almost 50 years later, Hall was also traveling to New York for a different reason, and a decision that he had made that would cloud his reputation and his work subsequently until the day he died. All right, Phyllis, we come back from break. Uh, you left us hanging, as you usually do, and I'm left with a bunch of questions. So I think the first question I'll ask you is this. Is this highly questionable decision that he makes, is this a reflection of just him being immature or would you consider this questionable even if he was 35? Right. I think that that's a good question. It's, it's certainly questionable regardless of age. Okay. It's something that Hall will chalk up in part, at least to him being young mm -hmm. later on in his life, but he made some questionable decisions um, that I'm going to lay out for you in a minute prior to even leaving uh, for Los Alamos okay. right, when he was first given the job and still living in New York. So the second part of this story, like I said, you know, when we first started, started off is just as amazing as the first. While Theodore Hall steadfastly declined to directly confirm accusations made against him, both the circumstantial evidence, a lot of which I'm going to talk about right now, and the hard evidence gathered against him, both in later interviews and wire transmissions, almost undeniably, Phil, proved that the country's youngest scientist working on the project to develop the first atomic bomb was a Russian spy. Oh, my. So, yeah, it would appear that Hall contemplated feeding the Soviets secrets pretty early on. In fact, shortly after he took his position in Los Alamos, even, his roommate in New York was an older confidant by the name of Saville Sachs. Kind of an interesting name. Yeah. And the first idea of passing sensitive information to the communists apparently emerged when Hall mentioned the project and the new job to Sachs. Okay. And he started to find out exactly what he was going to be responsible for. And it, sound, it sounded like it was innocent enough. And I think this idea was probably more Sachs' decision. Okay. And kind of he kind of planted a seed with Hall that Hall decided was a good idea. So how old was he? How old was he essentially when uh, when he first started to become? Right. When he left New York, probably about 17, he became 18, you know, when he first put, 
went to Los Alamos and and took on. So I would say, you know, prior to that, he'd already made the decision with Hall. So if, if so Hall I'm, was 14 when he mm -hmm. was denied uh, being at Columbia, right? Was he already being indoctrinated with? No, because it wasn't until he made it to Harvard gotcha. that he was recruited. Okay. And there's a very short window here because he receives this job, finds out a little bit about what it is, the fact that they're developing a weapon that will ultimately impact the, the outcome of the war. He's talking about his, his move to New Mexico. And Sachs, his roommate in New York, starts to kind of, I don't know, give him the idea that, listen, this might not be a very good good idea. And this might be something you want to let the opposing side in on as well. And I'll tell you why. He kind of explains himself later in his career. Like I said, he never says, yes, I did this. But the evidence is clear. And a lot of what he says in interviews, he might as well have just come out and said it. All right. Now, going back to the original portion yes. here, when you said that he was a little bit rebellious, mm -hmm. where he almost refused to salute commanding officers and I'm starting to put some pieces together. Was that was that part of his just rebellious nature or was that his almost like his subconscious spy mentality coming through? Well, knowing now that he was a Soviet spy, I think it would probably be both. Wow. And I think that it's weird because he's working for the U.S. He's helping us develop this weapon. While at the same time, there's resentment there for what we're doing, I think. That's that's unbelievable. I, I almost feel like we're we're... We're talking about the movie Salt again. I know we it. mentioned it a few episodes ago, and here we are, full yeah, circle. It, you forget that this is actual, you know, uh, an actual story. Yeah. It does at, at points sound very much like a Hollywood script. So Hall's espionage was uncovered through the highly secretive Venona Project, Washington's long and painstaking effort to decrypt 35,000 pages, 35,000 pages of Soviet diplomatic traffic. That would be phone messages. That would be um, telegraph communication yeah. intercepted between the years of 1942 and 1946 and which would have included Hall's communication after after accepting his position in 1944 so they have 35,000 pages of of spies um communicating with their soviet operatives over those 4 years and in the middle of it is Hall okay in the end, only about 3,000 of the original pages were ever recovered and deciphered successfully out of the 35,000, which isn't a lot. Right. But in those 3,000 were the communication that Hall had with people back in Moscow. So there's essentially less than 10% of the overall Right. And just by chance, it happened it? to include Theodore Hall's communication. Wow. So based on their findings... It's easy to say that the information Hall fed Moscow was at least as sensitive as that uh, which sent Julius and Ethel Rosenberg to the electric chair. The first clear reference to Theodore Hall had come in a message transmitted on November 12, 1944, by a known KGB station in New York City. And it wouldn't be until April of 1961 that this message would be deciphered, however. Now, I'm going to lay out the quote for you. Part of it will make sense based on what we've already talked about. And then part of it, I'll go through and, and help you decode. But here was the quote that um, the CIA intercepted and was able to successfully decipher in 1961. Quote, B.E.K. Beck visited Theodore Knoll, 19 years old, the son of a furrier. He is a graduate of Harvard University as a talented physicist. He was taken on for government work. 
at the present time, H, just the letter H, is in charge of a group at Camp 2. He handed over to Beck a report about the camp and named the key personnel employed at Enormous. So the CIA intercepts this. We'll talk about who Theodore Knoll is. All right, the son of a furrier, they're off with his age, which threw them off initially because they said, boy, everything else in here leads us to believe it's Theodore Hall. Right. The name's a little off, but it's close enough that we can infer. And hey, he's 18 years old and they think he's 19 years old. But the furrier, the son of a furrier, it's way too obscure to be coincidence. Graduate of Harvard, a talented physicist. And now he's working for the government. So that first part, you know, makes it obvious that the descriptions are are, are referring to Theodore Hall. The latter portion of the message had to be decoded. All right. And this is what the government came up with. Beck, B-E-K, was Sergei Kunikov, a Soviet journalist working in New York City at the time. Okay. So that's his code name. Camp 2 was the U.S. Scientific Research Center at Los Alamos. Oh, my gosh. And the word enormous, which was capitalized, was Moscow's cryptonym for the Manhattan Project. They'd, they'd intercepted and seen enormous referenced in various other um, messages. Uh, America's top secret initiative to develop the atomic bomb is what they're referring to by uh, as enormous. So the first part kind of made sense. And they were able to look at and realize Theodore Hall is the person they're referencing. In the latter part, they said, well, based on what we know, we can put some of the pieces together, but it's not looking good for Hall. So, you know, interestingly enough, Phil, this is the only known message to actually refer to Hall or Theodore Noel. Okay. And his fellow spy, Saville Sachs, who, who is referenced later on in that same uh, intercept directly by name. After that, they get referenced by codes. So what they're what they're assuming here is that once these two individuals came aboard as volunteer spies, it's important for us to code their names and not just continually use them all the time. Right. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. Yeah. So all other references use their code names, which were determined after this particular quote as follows. M. Lad, M-L-A-D, Young. All right. The reference for Young, Lad, for Hall. That's what that would be his code name and all of their Soviet communication. And star, stars are old. That will be the reference name for Sachs, That's who's, who's a little bit older, which the Venona deduced much later on. But, you know, again, it's 1961, too. So this is after the fact. Right. OK. By about 17 years. By about 17 yeah. years. But the message had been sent shortly after Hall had started work at Los Alamos and preceded any suspicion of Hall's espionage. So. It really, the CIA is looking back on history and saying, wow, this guy was feeding them information shortly after he took the job, even before he left for New Mexico. He and his his roommate in New York had made a connection with a journalist from Moscow in New York. And that's why Hall was returning for his 19th birthday with his parents to to re- you know, to to make that that bond again and give some additional information here. But they're saying there's they're seeing this through the lens of 1961. Wow. So we obviously know that the Manhattan Project became successful. Right. Uh, and in some of the 
some of the technology and the mm-hmm. science behind the bomb itself came essentially from a Soviet spy. Right. Yeah. And, and they're looking at this and saying, well, in 1961, well, if we look back and we look at the timeline that the Soviets were able to develop the bomb, it's pretty wow. shortly after the United States did. And that would make sense. So and what, again, I mean, it's this isn't the end all be all. It's not what Moscow used necessarily, I guess, to to develop the bomb. But it was a key component. And it was certainly something that if the government had found out about um, while Hall was still on the project or shortly there, thereafter, maybe in the, the years immediately following the war, he certainly would have had to answer to and probably most likely would have been executed. So here's the question. Yeah. You got 3,000 of the 35,000 pages. I know. What else is in there, right? What else yeah. is in there? And there's no way to decipher it. Yeah, it's, They haven't been able to. And I'm not sure if they're still trying to work on it or if it's old news based on where we are now with you know, terrorism. But um, that's a great point. Isn't there, a isn't there point. A, an element of curiosity Absolutely. that's, that's yeah. hopefully still looming somewhere yeah. in the CIA for, for something like that? Because, I mean, that could give us a lot of answers to... Maybe some things in the Cold War, the development of technology yeah. throughout, you know. We're not talking about a small amount, like you said, you know, only 10%. That is that is one of the most intricate, woven, uh, detailed stories I think uh, we've, we've had on this uh, on this podcast. So here's the question now in 1961 is where's Hall? It's a great question. So in the post-war era, Phil, Theodore Hall and his wife, who just happened to be a former teacher of Russian and Italian, Seized on an opportunity to leave the United States in 1962. So shortly, just by chance, after these papers came out, for what was initially to be a one year at the Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge University. So it's almost like he's going to go over and and act as a professor for a year and then return to the United States. But Hall lived a, a quiet life in Cambridge before his past began to haunt him. He would eventually return to the U.S. The declassification declassification of all the Soviet cables in the mid-1990s. So all 3,000 of those pages would be declassified much later than even the 1961, the 1990s. He's now back in the United States. A lot of the the people who had worked with him, his other conspirators were dead. And when he comes back by this time in the early 1990s, Paul is suffering from Parkinson's disease and also has been diagnosed with inoperable kidney cancer. So the the view of the American government at this point is there's no reason and a lot of speculative evidence here to prosecute somebody who's at this stage in their life. Right. So Theodore Alvin Hall would eventually succumb to cancer on November of 1999 at the age of 74. And while never fully admitting to be a Russian spy, his interviews with Albright and Kunstel in that book Bombshell uh, would make it obvious. So despite playing his actions off as being those of a younger man, a lot of what he said is kind of what I alluded to earlier, Phil, and that he said, well, I was, I was a kid. You know, I made decisions. We all make decisions as 17, 18, 19-year-olds that we look back on and kind of regret or laugh at. I don't think he ever actually said he re- regretted anything. He also is clear that his goal was to avoid having one country, a single superpower, from possessing the knowledge and the technical know-how needed to develop the atomic bomb. That was his entire focus of feeding this sensitive information. He didn't want the United States to be the only country that possessed this weapon beyond weapons. So it was his view that the country would be able to hold the rest of the world hostage and that having at least two countries, the United States and the Soviet Union, possess the bomb was safer and made the world and the balance of power in the world more stable. 
Now, wow. I know. Right. This is this is a lot to handle. I told you. So, remind me, the guy who, who took Hall under his wing. Uh, Van Vleck. Van, uh, no, the Soviet oh. Um, oh. infiltrator. Sa- How- All right. Yes. Sachs, Sachs was his roommate who his kind roommate. of gave him the idea, but then participated as well. So, was he himself a Soviet spy? And yes. Trying to, and yes. So he, okay. They so were both Soviet sure. spies. And one of the things I want to point out when I say that, you know, by the time the early 1990s comes around and this entire story is being laid out, Sachs is one of the conspirators that at this point has passed away. Okay. So it's, it's so, it's so interesting to me. So we have, we have Hall who is, I mean, it's Savant and by, by mm-hmm. all intents and purposes, he's in Harvard and Sachs, does Sachs already know about Hall? Yes. But well, they're they're roommates. I'm not sure exactly how they befriended one another and how they became roommates, whether it was just an economic decision. We decided to room together in New York City. But by the time he goes to Los Alamos to accept that new job, from my research, it sounds as though they've already made the decision that they will also feed this sensitive information of whatever work is done in New Mexico to the Soviets. Because, it, you know, it would be it would be easier, of course, mm-hmm. if. Paul started out as a spy you right. know, immediately from infancy, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and try to infiltrate the American system that way. But he was old enough where, I mean, he was old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, obviously. Right. But I'm just curious about that first, what was that first conversation that Sachs had to recruit him to share some of this information? I'm, I'm almost like you actually, you actually said it. I'm almost wondering if it was, um, if it was almost like a moral decision, like he was, he was pulling him in to say, Hey, listen, it's better. You don't want one, just like a balance of power. You don't right. want one country to have this technology. It sounds like that's exactly what they're trying to get at wow. in that. Again, they're in their minds, they're doing the right thing. You know, it's, I, I kind of said earlier on too, that when the job is initially offered up to hall, they're, they're intentionally vague as to what this weapon is like in Phil. At this point in history, in 1942, could you possibly imagine what the atomic bomb would have looked like, uh, you know, how it would have worked? I think as they start to get an idea of what Hall is going to be working on and the magnitude of what this weapon is going to be and what it's intended to be used for, I think that's when Hall and Sachs decide, listen, one country possessing this weapon is far too dangerous. In their mind, that's how they're going to... um, kind of excuse what they're going to be doing. So they, he, you know, he accepts this job on the pretense, listen, I'm going to help my government. Mm-hmm. We're going to sway the tide of war. We'll end world war two. And then I think he has that decision where it's like, well, I don't know, maybe the repercussions afterwards, um, you know, it's not just about ending world war two, but what are the, the post world yeah. war two years going to look like if only one country has the, the atomic bomb. So this is the, the final question I have. So I, as you're explaining all this, I, I think of, Sachs specifically, would you consider him more of an opportunist? I, I think so. Yeah. You know, I think he was taking advantage of the situation. He saw something. I think um, you would probably be, you would consider Sachs to be a, a Soviet sympathizer at this point. Okay. Otherwise, I don't think you offer up. Right. You voluntarily help a country. And that's what I was develop, Right. You know, would they have developed it sooner rather than later? Who knows? Yeah. It sounds like this this helped speed up the process for the Soviets to develop this weapon, you know, years fold. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just thinking if, if Sachs was 
was a spy from the get-go. That mm-hmm. he would have he would have started this process. They would have they would have located Hall much much earlier. But right. the fact that they just so happened to room together, and he saw this as an opportunity to, yeah. to reel him in. And by all accounts, he was the one that um, offered or or at least suggested this this plan. And Hall had the the job that was going to allow them to do wow. it. Wow. You know, the access to this information and playing a very key role, really, in the Manhattan Project. Now, where's Van Vleck? I know I said I had one final question, but this just popped That's in my head. That's a great question. Um, I, I would have to look that up, Phil. Okay. I'm not sure eventually what happens to him. If I'm assuming at some point, um, probably after the war, it sounds like he was an older gentleman. So um, by the time this by came the out, time this kind yeah. of comes out, it would be interesting, though. Yeah. To get his take on this, because, he, I mean, he he did look at this young man and respected him for what he was capable of doing and, and his abilities and was the one, you know, who essentially brought him in. And not for nothing, but yeah. he's the one that really looked at this guy with an abundance of, of energy and talent yeah. and then said, I'm going to hand over the keys to the Manhattan Project, not knowing right. that eventually he's going to become a spy. Right. And it wasn't Soviets. like Hall was just a, a, a cog in the Manhattan Project. I mean, he was heading up groups. Right, he was important. Right. He was in charge of some really important, you know, elements to making this work. But you're right. What a stab in the back. What a, um, you know, he he really turned on Van Vleck. Absolutely. Um, and, and his country, of course. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But I mean, in the era that we live in, um, and and we know, I mean, Phil, one of our favorite uh, uh, things to do with our kids is, is the Cold War espionage chapter oh, yeah. in school. But, in, you know, the number of spies that are, are working within the United States today, the number of spies that were in the Cold War, like you said, this is one story. One story. It'd be interesting to know what other stories are out there that we don't know as much about. And it took them almost 20 years, close to 20 years to figure out that this spy was, was infiltrating the United States. That's I wonder right. what we could find out in 20 years from now. Yep. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Hornder. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.